Hi everyone, Sarah Schaefer here. Thanks for checking out Art History Happy Hour. The episode that follows is back from when our podcast was called State of the Arts, and you can now find our episode blog and other resources, including a link to our Patreon page at arthistoryhappyhour.com. Hi, and welcome back to State of the Arts, a podcast that explores how art and its history shape our world today. I'm Sarah Schaefer. And I'm Tina Rivers-Ryan. So today we're going to be talking about the Parthenon Marbles, which is a group of sculptures um, held in the British Museum in London. Um, They're also commonly called the Elgin Marbles, named after the man who brought them to England in the early 19th century, Lord Elgin. The reason that the Parthenon marbles are are such an interesting topic of discussion um, is that they give us uh, a lot of insight into the complexity of arguments for repatriation of art and artifacts, whether or not objects that came from a specific place and now reside in in a different place should be sent back. Um, So questions over who really owns these things, issues of sort of national patrimony and how art figures into national culture and history, um, even logistical considerations of how objects should be stored and and exhibited in sort of proper care. Um, So as you'll see, as we discuss these objects, the issue becomes a lot more complex than Uh, just saying sort of, oh, an object came from a certain place, therefore uh, it should always live there. It should, you know, reside there permanently. Sarah's absolutely right that the Elgin marbles or the Parthenon marbles are a great um, example of the very complex issues that surround repatriation. But the Parthenon marbles are also interesting because they are sort of the, the key examples of classical Greek art. So when we refer to classical Greek art, we're normally referring to a very specific period that's centered around 5th century BCE Athens. So that's sort of the high watermark of classical culture. And these marbles, which which were produced uh, for the Parthenon on the Acropolis in Athens under the leadership of Pericles in the 5th century BCE, uh, have long been have been understood or been been viewed as the ultimate expression of that classical Greek culture. And classical Greek culture is um, something that can seem very far away, very distant and remote to people who live in the 21st century and are used to to images that are much more modern. In a sense, classical art is still very much with us. And it's everywhere. Yeah, first of all, it's everywhere. I mean, look at the the US government and its buildings. Look at the Supreme Court building in Washington, D.C. Look at uh, the Federal Hall National Memorial uh, on Wall Street to memorialize the place where George Washington was inaugurated as our first president. All of these buildings, they look like the Parthenon, right? They're 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 directly influenced by that style, by that culture. So we may not necessarily see contemporary artists today engaging classical forms, but the classical language is still very much with us today. And even artists like Picasso, for example, are constantly going back to that heritage and are continually thinking about it and feeling the need to get out from under it, even though it was more than 2000 years ago. So it is very much still alive with us today. So the Parthenon is part of a very large complex of buildings known as the Acropolis that sits on a high outpost in the city of Athens. And 
it was part of basically a, a large public works project um, that the the Athenian government wanted to inaugurate in order to create jobs and grow the economy. Basically, that was one of the reasons for building this this temple. Now, it, it is also a religious building. It serves that function. It's a temple dedicated to Athena, who is the patron saint of Athens. The temple did have other functions. It was also a treasury for money that belonged to the Delian League, which was an inter-island organization. So they have a treasury to pay for their ships and their warriors, and Athens becomes the key leader of this group of islands, and so the treasury will be stored on the Acropolis um, by the Athenians. And so some of that treasure was actually stored in the Temple of Athena that is called the Parthenon. There are a number of other buildings on the Acropolis. The Parthenon is the largest and most highly situated. So when people think of the Acropolis, I think usually they think of the Parthenon. Um, but there's also um, the Propylaea, the Erechtheon. Right. And actually, the you know, it's sort of funny to, to think about it because the, the Parthenon has become the Ur model of Greek architecture. But actually, um, it's not even the most important building on the Acropolis. I mean, it's not the most holy building. That would mm-hmm. be the Erechtheon. And it was not really seen by um, the Greeks of the time as being the pinnacle of Greek architecture. People thought it was much too gaudy. It had too many columns. It had too much sculptural decoration. Um, and so really, it's a, it's a different temple that becomes, it's much more modest, that becomes more frequently copied. So the, the, the Parthenon represents a sort of, a dead end in the evolutionary branch of Greek architecture. And the reasons why we have come to think of the Parthenon as being the greatest example of Greek architecture um, are, you know, sort of accidental. But one of those is the fact that it is such a big building. It's much bigger than any other building on the Acropolis, for example. And the fact that it was in Athens, which we've come to think of as sort of the most important of all those different city-states back then. Before we get into a discussion of the debates over whether or not the Parthenon marbles that are in the British Museum should be repatriated, it helps to understand what we're talking about when we talk about the Parthenon marbles, because there are actually three different kinds of sculptures that decorated the Parthenon. At the top of the east and western facades of the Parthenon, you have these triangular areas that are known as the pediments, and sitting inside these pediments are sculptures of the gods. And these are about um, 2.3 meters tall at the highest. And they're carved with a very great degree of depth. So they're almost like a freestanding sculpture in the sense that they have backs as well as fronts. Now, nobody would have seen those backs because they were mounted high up um, at the top of the the facade of the east and west side. But they, they are carved with a great degree of relief. In each of these pediments, you're seeing a story that is site-specific, to go back to the term that we use when talking about Kara Walker's installation at the Domino Sugar Factory. So they're site-specific in the sense that they refer to the, the local history of the city of Athens. So on the eastern facade, you have the story of the birth of Athena, and you see the news of Athena's birth being spread out to other gods in the Greek pantheon. On the western facade in the pediment, you have uh, the story of the battle between uh, Poseidon and Athena over who's going to be the patron god of the city of Athens. So they each give a present to the city. The people of Athens decide that Athena's present is superior. Her present is the olive tree. And so she's chosen to be the patron of Athens. And of course, the city is named after her. So that's what you see up in the pediments, these gods, um, particularly the god of Athena, the stories of her life, and you see um, them sort of larger than life size and carved almost fully in the round. 
Now below the pediments, you have a band that goes around um, the building. And this band consists of alternating metopes and triglyphs. And this is where the vocabulary starts to become a little bit hoary. If you'd like, you can go on our website and we'll have a chart up where you can see these terms um, and how they apply to different parts of the building. But basically the metopes are just square panels that alternate with with square panels that don't have any figural decoration. They just have um, little decorative sort of mini column-like um, designs on them. But these um, triglyphs or these abstract panels alternate with figurative panels called metopes where you have the representation of mythological heroes and of famous um, battles that these heroes fought. So for example, you see um, the battles of um, the centaurs and the lapiths, or you see the battles of um, the Amazons and the Greeks. And so in each of these scenes, basically, you're seeing either the Greeks themselves or stand-ins for the Greeks battling a foreign enemy um, and, of course, ultimately winning, which um, reflects you know, how the Greeks wanted to see themselves. And the metopes are smaller than the pediments. They're about 1.5 meters tall. And they're carved not almost like freestanding sculpture like in the, in the pediments, but they're carved in high relief. So it's very clear that these are attached to the panels, that the sculptures sort of grow out of the flat surfaces behind them. They're definitely part of the wall, so to speak. But they are carved so deeply that the figures actually cast shadows behind them, real shadows. Uh, and then finally, you have the frieze, and this is another continuous band that runs around the exterior perimeter of the Parthenon that's about one meter tall. And if the pediment uh, showed the gods and the metopes showed mythological heroes, the frieze shows humans primarily. And we see these humans basically participating in some type of procession uh, towards a festival celebrating Athena is what we think. So this was known as the Panathenaic Festival. And so these humans, um, you see them bringing goods, um, carrying jars on their head, or leading cows um, who are going to be slaughtered as sacrifices to Athena. And so because this is where you see the humans, uh, this is the shortest of the three, right? It's only a meter tall. And it's also carved in the, the lowest amount of relief. So uh, again, these are carved um, out of sort of square panels of stone, but they're very shallow. They don't cast as much shadows as the metopes do, the figures on the metopes. The Parthenon marbles that reside at the British Museum uh, include uh, a number of the figures from the East and West pediments, so the gods, um, including very famously a group of three goddesses. Um, and also um, a river god and another figure who is probably Dionysus. It also includes about 15 metopes, including um, metopes that depict the battles between the Lapiths and the Centaurs. And the Parthenon marbles at the British Museum also include about half of the Parthenon's entire frieze. Roughly, we can estimate that about half of all of the sculpture that was at the Parthenon, including the sculpture that was found on the pediments, the metopes, and the frieze currently resides at the British Museum. We're just going to kind of take a minute now and talk about one of the metope sculptures that's in the British Museum. Um, so this is a metope depicting the battle between the lapis and the centaurs. And this is relating to a story from Greek mythology in which 
um, the centaurs, these mythological half man, half horse uh, beings are invited to uh, the wedding of a Lapith. The Lapiths were another mythological group of people. So um, the centaurs came to this wedding drank a little too much wine and got a little raucous um, and uh, there was an ensuing battle uh, in which the Lapiths won and the centaurs were banned from the area, which was um, Thessaly. The image that we're going to be talking about, and we'll post it on our blog as usual, depicts the conflict between a Lapith and a centaur. We chose this image because it's a really good example of classical Greek representation. Um, so we have the figure of a centaur on the left and a Lapith on the right. They're in this moment of conflict. So you have the Lapith sort of punching the centaur in the head and the centaur has his hand around the neck of the Lapith. Um, and one thing that's really interesting about it is that even though it, it is an image of conflict, there is still this sense of harmony and balance that was really a, a crucial part of classical Greek representation. We can see this sense of, of balance uh, in the portrayal of the figures in the way that we have the, the Lapith on the right sort of with one arm raised, one leg raised, one arm down, and one leg down. We also have this relatively even split in the composition between the Lapith and the Centaur. There's also an interesting juxtaposition uh, between the left arm of the Centaur and the right arm of the Lapith. Um, they kind of create this, this, it's not quite a circle, but the sense of unity between the two figures where the the, the centaur's hand is grasping the lapith's neck and the the lapith's hand is coming in contact with the centaur's head um, creates this 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 balance of, of compositional um, flow between those two figures and even in in the very center of the composition you have this this moment where the the centaur's front legs are, are sort of intertwined uh, with the lapith's right leg. So it's it's another moment where where even though we're in uh, we're at a point of conflict, there's this this continuing sense of unity and balance between the two figures. And really, uh, in this particular metope, the only place where you can see a really clear sign of aggression is actually in the face of the centaur, which looks. Um, kind of manic and and quite angry, whereas the face of the Lapith looks relatively serene. And and this also has to do with the the need to to sort of um, portray the the centaur as the centaurs as these these bestial kind of less than human uh, creatures. Another aspect of the sculpture that's important to talk about is the way the bodies are portrayed. So. We have sort of two characteristics that are important to point out here. One is that they are depicted naturalistically. So they're depicted, uh, the bodies of, I mean, the upper body of, of the centaur uh, and the, the body of the Lapith are depicted both in a way that, that emulates what you would find in actual nature. But at the same time, they're also these incredibly idealized figures. So um, they're very muscular, they're very fit, and that sort of idealization of, of the human form 
is something that you find uh, throughout classical Greek sculpture. And the Parthenon marbles give us really good examples of that in the pediments, in the metopes, and uh, well, to a lesser extent in the frieze. When you visit the British Museum um, and see these sculptures, they're in relatively good condition still. I mean, some of them are losing or have lost arms or heads. Regardless of that, they're still in really good condition. And that's actually somewhat surprising considering the history of the Parthenon post-classical Greece. So in the era, early era of Christianity, uh, the Parthenon was actually converted into a Christian church. Later on, it was converted into a mosque. When it was under Ottoman rule, uh, the Parthenon was a was a place where they stored musician. <laughs> Maybe awesome. they stored musicians there. <laughs> the Parthenon was where the Ottomans actually stored munitions. Um, they assumed that no one would ever dare destroy the Parthenon, so why not store our munitions there? Well, when when Athens was then under attack by the Venetians, the Venetians shot into the into the Parthenon and there was a huge explosion which actually generated a lot of damage to the building the fact that we do have so many remains of the Parthenon is actually somewhat paradoxically thanks to the work of Lord Elgin when he when he came to Greece as the ambassador to the Ottoman Empire uh, in the late 18th century, right at the end of the 18th century. He, he had initially just come in to have artists sort of document and make casts of, of the remaining sculpture. But when he when he came in and saw what state the, the Parthenon was in, especially when compared to drawings of the sculptures that had been made just prior to the explosion that, that destroyed much of the building, when he saw how much had been lost in that interim, um, that sort of sparked his uh, desire to sort of save these these marbles. Elgin then obtained um, what was called a firman, basically a legal document, allowing him to go in and, and excavate some of the pieces there on the Acropolis around the Parthenon. Now, this firman is a very legally contested document. The original doesn't exist anymore. There's a copy that's sort of questionable. But I think most people tend to agree that even if he had been legally allowed by the authority figures who were in charge of the Parthenon at the time, even if he had been legally allowed to excavate and remove some pieces from from that site uh, in order to be preserved. It certainly wasn't expected that he would take as much as he actually did, which, as we said, um, is about half of the surviving uh, Parthenon marbles, half of those uh, pediment sculptures and metopes and um, the frieze. And Elgin then brought the marbles back over the course of a period from 1800 to 1812. And this was really in the midst of this huge revival of interest in classical Greece. This is coming in the wake of the publication of a series of, of writings by a German scholar named uh, Johann Winkelmann, who was the first to really go in and rig rigorously examine 
Greek sculpture and Greek art. And Winkelmann's ideas and his writings became very popular and very influential. And one phrase that, that was and it continues to be very often repeated from Winkelmann's writings about classical art. It's characterized by its noble simplicity and quiet grandeur, which then later on sort of devolved into this really uh, tumultuous and and much more active sculpture of of the post-classical Greek phase, which we're not going to talk about today. But what we see in the Parthenon is a good example of that harmony, that balance, and simplicity and grandeur that that Winkelmann um, was really extolling in his writings. When Lord Elgin brought the Parthenon marbles back to Great Britain, they were initially meant to decorate his Scottish mansion. He went broke pretty quickly, so at that point he tried to sell the marbles to the British Museum, and he ended up selling them for way less than what he actually paid for his journeys over in the excavation and and bringing the marbles back, um, which cost him about 70,000 pounds, and he sold them to the British Museum for about 37,000 pounds, so way less than what he actually paid. Um, so when they went into onto display in the British Museum, there was this this public who was clamoring for, for classical art and artifacts at that time. So this is right in the midst of... Uh, what's known as as neoclassicism, um, this this renewal of interest in classical Greece, um, not just in in art but in fashion, and it was also right at the moment that the British Museum was under a huge period of expans- expansion. The British Museum had been founded in 1753, so about half a century uh, prior to the Elgin Marbles getting there. This was the also the moment that public museums as we know them today were really coming into existence. So whereas before art and antiquities were held primarily by royalty and by aristocrats who kind of had them in their own homes, this was the moment that the great encyclopedic public museum was really coming into existence. Um, and the British Museum had expanded little by little through the late 18th century. But in this moment from 1800 to about 1812, when Elgin's marbles were were being brought over, this was when the British Museum was becoming more like what it is today. It was becoming this this huge museum, whereas before it had been a really relatively small and contained space. And you might think that the public would have categorically welcomed the addition of these marbles into this public museum. I mean, it was even today the British Museum is free and anybody can go in and see these things. But there was actually it was actually a controversial move even at the time. And a lot of people very publicly and very vehemently rejected this idea and were very uh, opposed to it. Uh, One significant individual who felt that way was the poet Lord Byron. In one of Lord Byron's poems, he speaks specifically about this this sort of travesty. I'm just going to read these the first few lines of this poem. He says, Dull is the eye that will not weep to see thy walls defaced, thy moldering shrines removed by British hands, which ha- it had best behooved to guard those relics ne'er to be restored. You know, who is saying, he was basically saying, who could not cry at seeing the Parthenon defaced and and its marbles removed. If Lord Byron was the first person to object to the marbles being removed by Lord Elgin from the Parthenon, 
He uh, certainly wasn't the last. It's been an ongoing debate ever since. And um, that debate has only intensified in recent years as more and more uh, countries feel emboldened to demand that objects that were taken from their lands and now reside in large, um, very famous museums be returned to them. And so the Parthenon marbles are seen as uh, the sort of er example of this class of objects. And so what Sarah and I want to do now is just to go through all of the arguments for the marbles staying behind in England, and then all of the arguments for the marbles being returned to Greece. And we hope to really characterize both sides of the stories here to treat both sides fairly. It is very much a, an issue that is open to debate, even in our own minds, actually. Um, so Sarah is going to first present the arguments for the marble staying in England, and I'm going to provide the counterpoints for each specific uh, argument that she presents. One argument that, that the British Museum often cites and puts on the table is the fact that having the marbles in the British Museum makes them more accessible to more people. The counter to this argument is that by that logic, if we're just interested in, in attendance numbers and, and believe that more people go to the British Museum than visit the city of Athens, shouldn't these marbles be relocated to a place that has a much larger population, for example, to China? Shouldn't they belong in a city like Beijing or Shanghai? Another argument for keeping them in the British Museum is that they're not just part of Greek heritage. They're actually part of world heritage. So it's part of the heritage of, of all of us, not just of one specific country. Contrary to that, though, we're, we're very sensitive now to the problems around globalization. The idea that the world shares in one heritage and that there's one world culture sounds a lot like colonialism, basically. It sounds like one culture really asserting itself over others, and that results in a kind of flattening of culture. A third argument for keeping the marbles in, in the British Museum is that were they returned, it would set up this enormous precedent that would have potentially a really devastating impact on museums around the world, that this would sort of um, liquidate the collections of a lot of a lot of important museums. But maybe it's not possible to create a precedent with the Elgin marbles. Maybe they're different than a lot of other objects that were taken from a land and changed hands. I mean, a lot of objects that were taken from a land um, to which they natively belonged were actually removed totally legally. And there's no question at all. Um, you know, the papers were signed. Everything was legit. Everything was above the board. So repatriating the Elgin marbles would actually have zero effect on this huge class of objects. And finally, the British Museum has often argued that keeping the marbles within their facility means that they can be properly stored and properly conser conserved. And this was a big problem from the 18th century on, that there was lots of acid rain and pollution and vandalism uh, to the Parthenon in Greece, and that removing them and taking them to Britain has allowed them to be um, maintained in good condition uh, for a much longer period of time. While it may have been true for a long time that the marbles were not particularly safe in Athens, the fact is that now Athens has built a new museum immediately adjacent to the Acropolis that is um, definitely set up to take care of the marbles should they be returned. And in fact, the museum currently houses marbles that were left behind by Elgin, um, and, and so those are on view now inside of this new museum and you can look at the marbles and then turn your head and look out the window at the Acropolis and, and see it sort of or imagine it all together again like it used to be. 
so what we're going to do now is is switch um, and in the sense that now we're going to talk about the arguments for repatriating the marbles um, that have been put forward. And again, Sarah is going to explain the arguments for repatriating the marbles and I'm going to provide the counterpoints. So one significant ar- argument actually ties in well to that last point Tina made that returning the marbles to Athens and to the Acropolis Museum is important for creating the this holistic unity of the marbles themselves so that it's important to see them all together to really understand the full extent of of the stories of the narratives um, and of the, the the program that's being presented by these marbles but maybe that's just um, the result of fetishizing the original state of the Parthenon and ignores the fact that these fragments have become works of art in their own right that um, they have a meaning now that is more than just uh, the unity of the Parthenon, that they're viewed as independent works of art. And not only that, but to if you were to return the marbles to Athens, they're not going to be put back up on the Parthenon. We're never going to actually restore the Parthenon to its pristine, holistic state. All they're going to do is take these marbles and put them in another museum it won't be the british museum but it'll be just another museum space and sure you'll be able to look out the window and see the acropolis over there but you're never gonna really have that that uh total recreation of the parthenon as it used to be with all the marbles in place simply because the the parthenon is not structurally sound you can't put the marbles back up there i mean they've done a restoration and they've sort of retrofitted the structure but still it's not safe a lot of the 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 structure where the marbles should go up is actually missing. It was blown apart. I remember that. And even if the you were able to put the the marbles back up, you wouldn't want to expose them to the elements, right? Because there is environmental, um, there are environmental concerns. Finally, it's important to point out that this desire to restore the Parthenon to a sort of full holistic original state, even though it's not really what we're talking about doing, we're just talking about putting these marbles in a different museum. Um, that this dream of restoring the Parthenon to its original state is kind of an, an arbitrary choice, right? Why restore it to the original state? Why not restore it to, say, what it was like when it was a mosque? Another argument for repatriation, and this is something we kind of touched on already, is that Elgin did not have the legal right to take these marbles. I mean, the 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 legal document, the Furman, that supposedly gave him this power is not in existence anymore and the trace of it that is left is incredibly legally contested it's not something that serves as proper grounds for his having taken so much of of what was left of the parthenon and and bringing it back to great britain just because we don't necessarily think that the the document that was made the Furman is legal now and we're not happy with it and just because we think that maybe it's morally questionable that that document was made doesn't mean that the people who made that document did not know what they were doing and did not have their own motivations for granting that power now whether Lord Elgin abused that power is a different question but there was some type of authorization that was granted and so that authorization reflected the immediate needs and desires of the people who made it and to retroactively go back and say well their reasons weren't good enough I mean is that really something that we can do so a a third argument for repatriation is just that the Parthenon and the the marbles are a really major part of Greek heritage and it's important that they exist within Greece itself 
But remember, as we discussed earlier, the Parthenon wasn't even really seen at the time as being the pinnacle of, of Greek architecture. It was seen as something that was gaudy and that was sort of a dead end. And most people decided not to copy that temple, but to copy different ones and take temple architecture in a different direction. And also, what do we really mean when we say Greek? Remember that the nation state of Greece as a modern political construct did not exist back then. I mean, Athens certainly has a claim, but does Greece as a nation have a claim when in fact the nation of Greece is actually younger than the British Museum? As a legal entity, the British Museum actually predates the country of Greece. So that complicates the idea that that Greece has some type of, of legal claim that might be older than the claim of the British Museum to these marbles. Um, and in fact, for a, a modern nation state like Greece to claim these marbles, it might be as much about nationalism and a kind of political grandstanding where Greek politicians are trying to prove um, that they are patriotic and that they want to protect Greece's image on the world stage it might have as much to do with that as with actually, you know, trying to prove a, a valid legal claim. And what about the idea that the contours of culture are actually fluid, right? Maybe Britain has as much of a claim on Greek culture as Greece does. If you think about it, you know, um, Greek culture, as Sarah discussed, became hugely important to Western Europe um, for a long time and even today continues to influence us. So maybe Greek culture sort of belongs um, in a cheesy sense to all of us as much as it does to Greece. And considering how important these marbles have been in shaping British culture for the past few centuries, maybe when they're on display in the British Museum, they're not there simply to tell people, including British people, about Greek history, maybe they're there telling British people and the rest of us about Britain's history. So a, a final point to bring up, and, and we discussed this a little bit already, is that now with the creation of the Acropolis Museum, which opened in 2009, the Greek people have the capability to properly store and exhibit and, and um, take care of these marbles, that they're not going to fall into a further ruined state, that they're not going to be subject to acid rain and, and pollution and so forth. But on the flip side, a lot of people, even a lot of Greek people, have pointed out that Greece is filled with historical monuments, with archaeological sites that are continued to be left to total ruin, that are not cared for in any way. So that allows people to be cynical and say, well, it's not really that Greek people really care about their cultural patrimony and, and really love to spend their weekends going and looking at ancient Greek art. Um, it's just this power play, right, to try to stand up to, to Great Britain like David to Goliath. On a recent update to this story and um, that ties back into that last point is uh, just earlier in July, the New York Times ran a story that showed the incredible conservation work that had been done on some of the caryatids from the Acropolis, these um, large female figures that serve as columns. And along with this article was this this video showing the painstaking process of, of treating and conserving these, these monuments, um, which are now back in the new Acropolis Museum and uh, were described in the article as sort of shining among among the remaining marbles. So it, it almost serves as a as kind of propaganda in favor of repatriation that they're they're demonstrating they do have the capabilities and and the facilities to take care of these artifacts. 
It's a complex story, um, and certainly not one that seems like it's going to be solved anytime soon. We hope that we have sort of unraveled some of the arguments, and, and we've tried to present them in, in as fair and balanced a way as possible. If you'd like to check us out on the web, you can find us at arthistory.today. Uh, that includes our blog, which has images that we've mentioned and links to articles that we've discussed. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash arthistorytoday and on Twitter at arthisttoday. Today.